Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your goodness to us. I ask that you will help us this morning as we come to worship you. What a joy it is to be able to join with others to worship you in spirit and in truth. I pray that you will help us as we come to the scriptures. Often we bring all kinds of uh, uh, hindrances in our own hearts and our own minds to, uh, to the word of God. But we ask that your spirit will uh, open up our hearts, that we might understand the scriptures, that we might, particularly in this passage this morning, see the glory of Jesus Christ in comparison to the angels. We ask that you will be honored. We ask that uh, you will be glorified in our worship this morning as we offer it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you'd like to turn uh, to uh, Hebrews chapter 1 and 2, it's an interesting passage this morning, a little bit different. Um, I'm going to be speaking for a few minutes. Um, Just to kind of help us understand the, the context of Hebrews chapter 1 and 2, because as far as I can tell, it's probably a passage that speaks more about angels than, other, than any other passages in the Bible uh, in terms of maybe not describing the event of an angel, for example, um, visiting Abraham, but in terms of looking at the angels in terms of their relationship with Jesus. Now, that might seem like an odd thing for us to, uh, to look at, but it was an important thing when Hebrews was written, and it was an important thing in the lives of the people to, uh, to whom the book of Hebrews was written. So we kind of need to jump back there and have a look at the uh, normal way that Judaism approached angels back in the first century. Now, we're looking, Hebrews was written in the first century, but the ideas about angels that they had in the first century go all the way back. They go back for centuries. In fact, it looks like the main, not the only, but the main place where things began to change was when, um, was when Israel was in captivity in Babylon. And when they were in Babylon, uh, the rabbis teach that that's where they learned the names of the angels. And at that point, I think it probably would have been um, the uh, celestial uh, sphere, which we now know, the closest we know about it now is when we look at the, um, uh, what is it we get, the Scorpio and all those? The horoscope, yeah, the horoscope. When we look at the horoscope, there are 12 figures on the horoscope. That The, the horoscope comes down through centuries and, of, and centuries of being changed. And at one time, the horoscope would have been actually um, 12 angels or 12 beings that kind of ran the celestial sphere. Um, but I want to go back and just look a little bit about, in, in terms of the background in uh, Judaism uh, at this time, so that we can understand why the author of Hebrews is so concerned with making sure that the, his, his people that he's writing to understand the differences or the, the differences between the angels and Jesus, the Son of God. Um, if you uh, the, the one the, the one main source that I've uh, taken here is a book that's common 
uh, you would you would be aware of uh, Alf, Alfred uh, Edersheim's The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, and you can go back and look in him in, in his book, and he's got a whole section on angels. But um, in fact, it is so complex; it is so uh, overwhelming. In uh, after decades and centuries of continued speculation uh, about the angels. Um, it, just, it just gets so, uh, so complex that I'm taking, you know, thousands of pages of stuff and kind of cramming it into just a, a few little things here for us just to get a handle on what's being spoken of. So eventually, by the time you get to the first century, within the understanding of Judaism... Um, you have arrived at a handful of major angels. So the angels are divided into angel princes who are rulers. Uh, Then you've got angel servants who are messengers. Um, Obviously, in the the Bible, we've got Gabriel and Michael. Those are two angels that are named in uh, in the Bible, in the Old Testament and New Testament. But... We're talking about things that were then added to that. Speculation added on speculation. Angel added on angel. The attempt to take a passage like out of uh, the book of Revelation where it talks about uh, innumerable angels. The attempt to take the innumerable angels and put them in ranks of authority and ranks of power and name uh, captains of those hosts and sub-captains and generals and just kind of like a whole army, just a, a speculative um, attempt at trying to name all these spiritual invisible beings. Now, there's a lot of interesting teaching that goes into why that's the case, but the upshot of it is, is that these beings are introduced and they're named and they're ranked and they're given certain levels of authority because they are, they keep us, uh, they, they are between us and God. And um, these, uh, so I want to focus on this one particular angel here. So in the, um, uh, in the four or five major angels, and there's different, some will say six, some will say seven, some will, some will say five. And these are angel princes. These are angel princes, um, in other words, they're rulers, they rule over uh, uh, they rule over all the other angels. Um, there were four of these, or five of these. You've heard of Michael. You've heard of Gabriel. Those are those are two of them. There was another one named Raphael and another one named Uriel. Um, these all got named sub or outside of the Bible, um, and also probably after the Old Testament was written. But then there's one that shows up, and he is the greatest of all these angels, and it just floored me. I like the Transformer series. Have you seen those movies? They're pretty cool. Anyway, there was an angel called Metatron, and I know that in the Transformer it's Megatron, but this was close enough to me, because this Metatron, apparently, he is under the throne of God, And he is before in front of the throne of God. 
And as you began to look at what Metatron does and all the angels, all the other angels as well, are positioned around the throne, one of their jobs, what they do as they rule, is they keep other beings out of the presence of God. Uh, They keep people, not people, they keep other beings, other spiritual beings away. And um, there's, there's attributes that are given to them, very special things, like Metatron is the only one who is actually right there in the veil, in the cloud with God. He's actually supposed to be right in there with God. Um, Metatron is the one who is, who is um, called the Logos. Uh, he is the one who is referred to as the representative of God. Um, he is the one who is called the little God. He is the one who shares in the majesty of God. He sits in the innermost chamber of God. Um, it is said that Metatron is the one who showed Moses all of Palestine at the, at the end of that 40 years in the wilderness. It is said that he is the one who led Israel in the wilderness. That's Metatron. And then you've got these other, uh, Michael who is, uh, who is spoken of in the Old Testament. But then through these other speculative writings, he's given all other kinds of, of, uh, there were other things that he apparently did as well that are not in the scriptures. Um, Michael and Gabriel apparently were there, uh, at the uh, wedding of Adam and Eve. And uh, Michael is supposed to have been the angel in the bush uh, when Moses met God. Um, that's probably enough. You could go on and on, and there is a lot more. And it's just, if you're interested in that kind of stuff, it's kind of fascinating. But what it does is it helps to see, or it helps us to understand why this interaction uh, in Hebrews with angels is so important. Because angels had such an important place in the lives of, in the, in the teachings of Judaism, in the lives of many people who would have been addressed, uh, by the gospel, uh, in the early church. Now, just as a general, as a general observation as well, it doesn't mean, um, we're talking about, we're talking about kind of the, the biblical and immediately surrounding the biblical teaching on, on angels. Um, and what grew out of there. Um, but we have, human beings, I think, have a, um, uh, have an inclination uh, to uh, address or have some kind of spiritual authority speaking to us when we are talking about religion or spiritual things. For example, um, uh, Muhammad is, is kind of authorized by an angel. His writing, he received that from an angel. He's, he received that according to the Quran, uh, from Gabriel, uh, an angel that's named in the Old Testament. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, also received his tablets from an angel, um, apparently. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not agreeing with all this. I'm just telling you that this is the way that it was. And so there's a sense in which when we begin, with humans, begin to begin to try to speak on behalf of God, or with the authority of God, they've got to kind of call someone uh, outside uh, as a witness. And, uh, and so that's, I think, 
probably the, the explanation for Mohammed and the explanation for um, Joseph Smith as well. And if you go into other religions, even religions where there are not supposed to be uh, a personal God and angels, you still find these spiritual beings hanging around doing this or that or the other in terms of, of teaching and, and revealing. In one religion, there's even, uh, it's, it's actually people who have left here, gone into quote-unquote heaven, and decided they need to come back to teach other people because they've been there, and they can come back and teach other people how to get there. So there's this continual dependence on, on supernatural and spiritual beings that uh, has developed uh, amongst us as, as people. So it's not as if these things are just totally obsolete, and we haven't even gone into any of the... Um, the kind of teaching that it would characterize new age and modern, you know, kind of super, super modern uh, spirituality. Um, but we nonetheless seem to want to or need to engage the unseen world in this way. Now, the speculation about angels continued to build up and build up and build up. And you can go do a search on it and you'll find it is active. It is active as anything today. I mean, I just, I just poked in Michael and I came up with a whole thing, which is very interesting because at the top of the page it quoted Colossians and it talked about dominions and powers and stuff. But, but that was just a little quote at the top of the page. And then right under the page they had these incredible pictures of angels. And it was all about angels. It was all about Michael and all these archangels and all these different ranks of angels. And that's current and common in one of the largest uh, Christian uh, denominations in the world today. It's just, it's right there with us all the time. What happened, the reason you, us, the reason that we don't get into that a whole lot is because at the time of the Reformation, of, of which we are an offspring of the Reformation, at the time of the Reformation, they decided that they would stop the speculation and they would go to the Scripture and they'd find out from the scripture what the scripture had to say about angels, which is very little. It's there, but if you go, if you do much else other than what is there, it's speculation. It's, it's either something you're saying that you've got a certain vision of, or, uh, or you're just going to, you know, dream this up or write this up. So, uh, almost all of the, um, uh, of the information that we have on angels, and I'd say uh, over 90%, that is available uh, is speculation. It doesn't come from the scriptures. And at the time of the Reformation, they trimmed it way down. They said, no, we're not going to get into this whole thing of angels. We're going to look and see what the scriptures say. So there was a kind of a, um, a trimming down of the, of the interest in dependence uh, on angels at the time of the, um, the Reformation. Um, so I want to get into Hebrews and um, look at, I'm going to read from uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, uh, the second half of verse 3. After he, that is Jesus, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. 
So that's kind of a starting off point in Hebrews. He's, he's speaking about Jesus, but he, he pretty quickly gets into talking about angels right there in chapter 1, verse 3. And then he goes on, he says he's inherited a name that is superior to the angels. So what he's getting at here is, remember, use Metatron as, as the, the, uh, the, the symbol. Metatron is there to keep any being from God, from accessing God. It doesn't matter if it's human or spiritual. Uh, it's, it's forbidden. You cannot approach God. And there's truth to that. There is truth to that. So, you know, you don't want to say, you know, I've said here before, you can't just walk into the presence of God. Who can do that? Nobody can do that. Nobody can just, you know, just go, I'm going to go there. I'm going to go there. You don't even know where to go. Um, God reveals himself to us. But um, the angels were there to stand between us and God and other beings in God. So here we have a contrast now with the Son of God, Jesus, uh, and the angels. So it goes on verse 5, for which, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. Now, these questions assume a negative answer. There are no angels that God has said, this angel will be my son. Whether it's Michael or Gabriel or any other angel that has been concocted by humans, that, that, is, a, that is a relationship, that's a, that's a status, that's a father-son relationship um, that no angel can ever enter in on. Um, there is no being in creation whether visible or invisible, that replaces or overpowers God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here we're focusing mainly on the relationship between God the Father and the Son. Everything else is created. Every, every other being is created. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are uncreated. They are divine. Um, and this relationship... Um, is inviolable. It it can't be broken. It can't be uh, it can't be broken open and invaded or or broken down or anything. God says to Jesus, "You are my son." Now these uh, passages here, this particular passage, "You are my son." Today I have become your father. Are used in the New Testament in relation to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Not only is Jesus the Son of God eternally. But he is declared amongst cre- the creation to be the Son of God by virtue of his uh, resurrection. I'll read one. Uh, there's a passage in Acts 13 you can look at where uh, Paul is preaching. And he talks about that in relation to Jesus' resurrection from the dead in his preaching of the gospel. But it's also in Romans 1 where Paul talks about... Um, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So God has demonstrated publicly that Jesus is his son, and he's done that by his resurrection from the dead. 
Um, He has declared him to be his son. And God has not said that to any other created being. He is not... Uh, he has not um, revealed that relationship with angels or people. Um, Jesus is the unique Son of God. So, as this question is asked, you are to which of the angels did God ever say, "You are my son; today I have become your father"? Or again, "I will be his father, and he will be my son." The answer is no; he hasn't. That's assumed. Um, and um and and as i said that relationship is unique unique b- between the father and the son now the next section i want to look at is in verse 6 we're just going down and we're looking at so that's the first thing that the author has spoken about he said he has not given this to any of the angels there this relationship is between god the father and the son unique god has not declared that in relation to any other being. Um, And then it goes on to verse 6 and it says, And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, that is Jesus, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels servants, his ser- spirits, his angels spirits, his servants, flames of fire. So, um, another declaration about the son. When he brings his firstborn in the world, the angels worship the son, not the other way around. Now, you can recall, we sing it every Christmas. We talk about the angels out there worshiping the son. When he is born, and there's, it's just a, a, a general, it's not necessarily referencing that, but that's one place that we can actually see that that occurred. The angels come, and they are, uh, as it says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. The angels are servants. They are not the son, they are servants. They are servants of the son. They are servants of Jesus Christ. I want to jump uh, just for another verse that brings this out into Revelation chapter 5. Um, Revelation chapter 5, where we can see what these angels are doing. Now, before I even get there, I just want to say, this is one of those verses, or a verse, where we have, when I say we, Christians in general and non-Christians as well, we haven't been able to just leave this as it is. We have had to try to figure out how many angels there are. We have tried to figure out how are they ranked? What are their status? What are their names? How much power do they have? What do they do? We've tried to create all kinds of, of complexity around this when uh, we are not given that information. Uh, in fact, the, even the, the numbers that we... We're not supposed to look at these numbers and try to add them up on a calculator and come up with, oh, that's how many angels are there. 10,365,000. Isn't that wonderful? No, that's not the purpose of a passage like this. This is Revelation 5, 11 through 13. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice. They were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain 
to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. That's what the angels do. The angels worship God. They worship the lamb. They, they uh, ascribe to him power and wealth and wisdom and strength. They do that all the time, even when we're, when we're sitting at home watching TV. Or maybe when we're at church and we've come to join the angels to worship Christ, but we struggle in worshiping God on a Sunday morning for one reason or another. Maybe the heat, right? Some of you got the fans going. The angels are worshiping him all the time. But again, as I said, it's not, it's not an invitation to speculation. It's an invitation to worship. It's an invitation to honor God. It's an invitation to praise him and glorify Jesus Christ. And I think it's also important here, because we'll be getting into that in just the next, next couple of verses, that we see that it is as a lamb who was slain. That's the weakness of Christ. That's his humiliation. When he becomes a man and he, he is subjected even to death, that people often don't think of that as a, as a spiritual, a good spiritual thing. It's, it's humiliating. So Jesus is worshipped here even in his humiliation of being the lamb who was slain. The angels are worshipping him and praising him. In verse 8, but about the son, he says, okay, I better, I better pick back up on verses 6 through 7 because um, we intersperse the Revelation passage. So in verse 7, in speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, okay, in contrast to the, uh, to the angels, servants, flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Just to draw our attention here to the fact that it is God who is speaking about the Son. And God says about the Son, he addresses him as, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. This is God's witness that Jesus Christ is divine, that he is God. It is God bearing witness that Jesus is God. He says about the Son, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. And he speaks here about the, the attributes of God um, in terms of his creation, in terms of his being beyond, um, beyond the... Uh, uh, the created order. Let me continue reading verse 10. He also says, who's speaking? God is speaking. God also says, he also says, in the beginning, Lord, as he speaks about Jesus, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. There's only one God 
in the Old Testament, and that's Yahweh, that has that kind of being, that he is above the creation, and the creation is like a garment is just rolled up, and God remains forever and ever, and Yahweh is speaking about his son here. He is addressing his son and saying, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth. You wonder where the Trinity comes from? That kind of Christian thinking, it comes from verses like these. We have to do, we have to do with these verses the best that we can. And I don't mean that in, the, in, a, in saying that the, that the Trinity, that the doctrine of Trinity is minimal. I don't mean that at all. But these are the things that pressed on the church so that the, the, the working through of the Trinity uh, was consistent with the witness of Scripture. God subjects all enemies uh, of the Son to the authority of the Son. Enemies... Uh, let's see, in, in verse, uh, the next verse, verse 13, to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? He didn't say that to any of the angels, whether it was Metatron or any of the other ones. He says that to his son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. All the subjects, excuse me, God subjects all of the enemies of Jesus Christ all the enemies of redemption and the work of redemption to the authority of the Son. So that in the end, we can have a verse that says something like, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Because God is the one who is subjecting uh, all of Christ's enemies, sin and death, to be conquered by him. And then verse 14 says, are not all angels ministering spirits, spirits, sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. That means that um, there is evidence in the New Testament that the angels are there to serve God's people. In fact, there's one mentioned further on in um, Hebrews. And um, just lastly, if you look at the, uh, this is really the main passage, but, but it just kind of caps, caps the rest of it off, what we've been doing. As a result of all of these things, where Jesus is contrasted to the angels, um, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, chapter 2, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Now, it was understanding that it was angels who actually were involved in the giving of the law. That's what verse 2 is, what's behind verse 2. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come. So now, you know, it's starting to wrap this up. The future, the future world. What's it going to look like? It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present... 
We do not see everything subject to him. This is where you and I live. We live by faith, understanding these things to be true, understanding that Jesus has come here, he has paid for sin, he has died, he has resurrected, he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, he has been declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. And yet, we do not see everything subject to him. But, verse 9, we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while. Isn't it an interesting perspective? From this perspective, it's only a little while. He's made lower than the angels for a little while. And he is now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That's the hard part for the angels to get. That's the hard part for people to get. That a a spiritual being, the very Son of God, Instead of coming here on a chariot with all kinds of stuff, he came here and he suffered death. But he suffered death, as it says, by the grace of that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That's why he was made a little lower than the angels. So that he could come here, so that he would come here and taste death for everyone. And, and, and yet, as, as the author has had to do, people still are, are happy for angels to, to be more, uh, more powerful and more authoritative than Jesus because it just doesn't look right that the Son of God would leave heaven and come here and die for us. A little lower than the angels for a little while. And yet, we, if, if you're a Christian, you by faith, um, you see him crowned with glory and honor even now, but it is not visible. It is by faith that we see that. And that's really the question, I suppose, that we need to ask ourselves this morning is, do you see Jesus crowned with glory and honor right now? Do you see him that way? Because he has suffered death for everyone. And I hope that you do. And I hope that you understand that he has died for our sins and that you have Uh, repented and gotten rid of your own self-righteousness or your own wisdom or whatever that might keep you away from God and that you've come to him and that you that you see him for who he is and you realize that this is the closest and best possible relationship that you can have with God and angels can't offer you anything else they can't offer you anything better it is with the son that we have fellowship and he has brought us into his family so that we know his father as our father. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this passage, a little difficult, I suppose, but this passage uh, that helps us to understand that um, whatever kinds of uh, wisdom that humans come up with or visions that they come up with, that they are all subject to the Son, that um, um, the, the work of the angels is subject to the Son, that the angels don't block us from uh, knowing God as our Father. They can't keep us away, nor can they introduce us to the Father. Only the Son can do that. Father, we thank you and praise you 
that we do see Jesus who was made lower than the angels for a little while. We now see him crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. We honor him and we praise him for his work. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.